African music activists. Africa is a huge continent with so many different languages that are spoken. How can we communicate if we don't have a common language? Then music was the answer. This time, Dizu Plaitis. Sister Bo, when I look at my country, I just said to myself, if ever this traditional instrument and this music would be get lost, then we are finished. Do you feel like an activist or I uh, really I I do this. I do. Hello, I'm Bedina McConaughey and welcome to this edition of African Music Activists, the podcast where we meet some of the continent's most important musicians. Important not just because of the music they make, but because of their contribution to keeping traditional African music alive, evolving and above all heard. Today's African music activist is someone very close to my heart. Dizu Plaikis is currently Associate Professor of African Music Performance at the University of Cape Town, or UCT as we call it in South Africa. And he was my lecturer when I went to study music in 1994. We were actually his first class. His passion for traditional African instruments and music, plus his ability to communicate that passion, changed my life forever. I went back to UCT to speak to him and get him to tell me the story of how he came to be one of South Africa's most successful musicians, teachers and an activist. His playing of traditional instruments, in particular the uhadi bow and the umkhube, the mouth bow, has brought traditional African music to audiences who would never have heard it. And it has taken him a long, long way away from rural Ponderland, Lusikisiki, in South Africa's Eastern Cape, where he was born in 1959. But now this conversation, we don't have to be... We sat in a practice room, so you might hear a bit of piano practice in the background, and talked. First of all about where his love for these instruments came from. I started seeing them at an early age from my aunts, from my uncles, from my daddy, and so on. Mkhobe is a carved instrument with a string and with a stick where you bow. And this instrument, it looked like the bow of the sun, the hunter's bow. Our mothers didn't adopt how the sun people play the umkhube. They sort of like invented their own way. If you are walking in the fields and you see this grass, the one that you use when you play mkhube, now it's got leaves, very thin leaves. When there's windy, there's a whistle that goes. When now they started to say, let's try and produce the same sound that we are hearing to umkhube. Good bow players, they whistle. Men are not allowed to play that instrument. It's mainly women. Because of me, I was the last born at home. You know, the most lovable one by all the aunts and the, you know, and so on. So they say, come here, you know, and they would play mkhube, you know, while I'm sitting on their lap and so on. That's how I became master when to mkhube. Dizu's mother died when he was only four and his father brought him to Cape Town where he stayed until it was time for high school and he went back to the Eastern Cape. 
After school, he became an apprentice bricklayer with ambitions to be an architect, but that wasn't to be. In 1976, he got caught up in the school uprisings and ended up in jail after being wrongfully arrested. He felt like he was a long way from the place he knew his home, so he went back to Cape Town. The apartheid regime didn't care that he had bricklaying skills. With his dark skin, he could only be a labourer, and he eventually found work with the Boy Scouts of South Africa. This meant money to do what he really wanted to. I bought my, myself a disco machine. I was the first black DJ. I used to play also this uh, African music of Yomasekelele Tambuli, Miriam Makeba, and so on, Jonas Gwangwa, Kaifa Semenya. I had rivals, the colored set disco, but the music was totally different. They were playing American music, I was playing African music. So, the only black DJ in Cape Town playing African artists when everyone else was focusing on America. Dizu's passion for the music of his country was already beginning to show. But the real turning point was just about to happen. As he returned to the Eastern Cape to go through the traditional closer rite of passage that allows boys to become men. 1979, I went to the School of Manhood in Solo. That's where I learned everything in Solo. Singing, dancing, everything. And I was taught so many things. When I came back to Cape Town, I said that I'm going to start my own band. I'm going to start my own band. It was a vocal group with drums, singing traditional songs that I've learned from the school of manhood and so on. Thereafter, I said, guys, if we need money, let's go and bask. I was the first basker in Cape Town. This was South Africa in the early 80s, and so life for a group of traditional African musicians on the street wasn't easy. Police officers, traffic officers, you know, they used to chase us. We used to run with marimbas, you know. One has to take his drum, whatever that we are playing. When we were at C-Point, in C-Point, the colors, they said, no ways, these guys are not going, they're not moving. Beat us. And I'm telling you, that's why sometimes I, I, you know, I respect the colored communities. Some other colored guys were taken to the police vans, you know, because of us. And the manager of the hotel opposite ShopRite, he said that, come and play in my garage. During the apartheid, not all other people were into that, you know. Some other people never, they hated apartheid. If I was not playing music, I wouldn't even know about those things. So, a young Dizu Plikes was beginning to understand how music can create links between people who would otherwise have nothing to do with each other. But that wasn't the only positive about this new musical group. We used to make a lot of money, Sister Bo, you know. That's how I started music. Because if we pass from Friday, Saturday and Sunday, we, do, we go to Kems Bay, we could feed our family for a month. Dizu had found his musicians on the streets of Langa, the Cape Town township he lived in. And originally they were called the Langa Drummers. But that didn't feel like it captured what the group was really all about. When I asked members of the band their clan names, you know, they were very close to the Pondo people, you know. Then I went back to Pondoland to the king to ask the name Amam Pondo whether I could use it for my band. And he said yes. Then I came back, I named the band Amam Pondo.
With Amampondo, we're using drums, we're using kudu horns, we're using mbiras, we're using uh, mchingo, the flute, amadinda, and a capella vocals, and then dancing acrobats. That's what makes Amampondo so famous. With my band, I never played mkhobe, I never played uhati. Because now I was crazy off because of the new instrument that were introduced to me, which was a amadinda, choppy xylophone, you know, and all these instruments, they were coming from Andrew Tracy from Kramstar. Of course, Professor Andrew Tracy, son of Hugh Tracy, the founder of the International Library of African Music, or ILAM as it's known, where I work, and who, until not that long ago, was my teacher. In fact, Dizu and all of Amambondo came to Grahamstown, now called Makanda, the small university town in South Africa's Eastern Cape, to learn these new instruments and to make their first album, Kau Kangele. We're featuring Andrew in one of the other editions of this African Music Activist podcast. So, while I was talking to him about that, I asked him about Dizu and his visit and what he remembered about this young man who was so hungry to discover the instruments of his heritage. There were about six or eight of them. I think it was his whole group at the time, Amampondo. I just played everything and he picked up everything. He didn't pick it up all exactly, but it was always a process with him of interpreting what he learned from me and rethinking it in terms of his own music. He doesn't limit himself to that. He absorbs influences. Um, so that was always at his background, and his strongest songs are those to, which sound most pondo to me. But also he learned a lot from Cape Town, because Cape Town was way ahead of the country, and they actually developed quite a Cape Town sound. And they started playing the marimbas. what Dizu did with the marimba is a great example of just how influential he has been in shaping our perceptions of traditional instruments. He'd been introduced to the instrument by Father Dave Dargi, a Catholic priest who basically introduced the marimba into the church in South Africa while advocating for African music to be part of the church music repertoire. But once the marimbas were in Dizu's hands, things changed. I was the first to take out the marimba from the church to the streets of Cape Town. All over, you know, people now today, they are playing marimbas, and the only thing that I really don't like, they don't know the history of marimba. Who started marimba in this country? You know, who popularized marimba across the globe? Dizu and Amapondo's own special take on the traditional African sound turned them into stars, not just in South Africa, but internationally. But, of course, it was still the 80s, and there was still apartheid. The world wanted to see and hear them, but actually getting out of the country wasn't easy. Getting a passport. Oh! Before we got the passport, you had to have a book of life of Transkai. You've got to have a reference by Facebook, you know, a pass. If you don't succeed with that, you've got to have a ID of the sky. You know, you've, you were going round and round. Where are you going? Whom do you know there? Have you paid there? We said, no, it's the first time. It's the first time. 
Do we have money? There were so many questions that were asked. But they did get their passports and they did travel, taking their music and their thrilling stage show with its dancers, instrumentalists and singers to audiences all around the globe. And their reputation as extraordinary musical ambassadors for South Africa eventually got them a very special invitation. This is Nelson Mandela. To play at the Nelson Mandela 70th birthday concert at Wembley Stadium in London in June 1988. Amon Pondo were alongside Miriam Makeba, Whitney Houston, Sting, George Michael and Stevie Wonder, amongst other superstars. The concert was watched by over 600 million people in 67 countries and seen as a huge milestone in the fight to raise international awareness of the injustices of apartheid. Happy birthday. Happy birthday, Nelson Mandela. Just before I enter Wembley Stadium, I saw Oliver Tambo. You know, Oliver Tambo as a ponder person, I have to go and greet him. Then we played, oh, I'm telling you, we were supposed to play for 10 minutes. You know, Africans, we never play for 10 minutes. What is 10 minutes to us, you know? We play and play and people, you know, and so on. And then MC, this is my brothers from South Africa. When we left the stage, I'm telling you, people could not believe. And then the following week, they've announced that Amampondo are going to do a world tour. Amampondo seemed to be on their way to international stardom, but then something happened that they could never have foreseen. We came back to Cape Town, went to Johannesburg, and then we heard now Amampondo has been boycotted. Hey! It was new now to all the people. You know, that show, we were watched by over 60 million viewers. Imagine the money that we were supposed to get. But we donated the money to the very same organization that boycotted us. That was an African National Cultural Desk of London. We were boycotted for four years. We were not allowed to play in South Africa and outside South Africa. Now, the bread was being taken from us. And then the members of the band, some of them, they started drinking. That's where the trouble started. The reason given for the boycott was that Amampondo had played in Israel and Taiwan, two countries seen as friendly to the apartheid government. Whatever the reason, it seemed a bitter pill to swallow. After all, Amampondo had been some of South Africa's most effective ambassadors, raising people's consciousness of what was going on here through their music. It was a difficult time, but then help arrived from a man well known for his sense of justice and fair play. Archbishop Desmond Tutu, himself a struggle icon, got involved. He made an album with Amampondo, Give Praise Where Praise is Deserved, a mixture of music and his speeches. And finally, he intervened directly. And Bishop Desmond Tutu wrote a letter to them saying that, guys, this group is a part and parcel of the struggle of this country. We've got to have people who are supposed to raise our flag. We've got to have people that are going abroad, you know, 
preaching about what we are doing with Africanism. You boycott these people, you are boycotting yourselves because these people are the ones that bring money in their country. Tourists, they come because they want to see more of this, you know. And then the boycott was lifted because of Bishop James Mututu. Dizu and Amampondo were able to perform again. And in 1995, they were invited to play at that unforgettable Rugby World Cup final at Ellis Park in Johannesburg. There it is. Francois Pinar and Nelson Mandela is cheering along with the whole of the stadium. Afterwards, they joined the line to meet a big fan of theirs and the most important person in the stadium that day. While we were in a queue to go and greet Mandela, one of my late friends, you know, and my drama in Amampondo, Michael Utong, he said to me, can you tell the Mandela that we were boycotted, now we don't have any jobs? I said, hey, I'm afraid, man, I'm afraid of this man, you can see this man, everybody. <laughs> I was very afraid. But I'm telling you, the minute I started to shook his hand, he said that, where do I know you from? I said, no, I'm Dizu Plakis, a guy who performed for you while you were still in, in Polsmo. He said, oh, is that you? I'm very grateful. Wow. And then I said to him, hey, the only thing that really happened to us, you know, is when we were boycotted by your organization. And you find that more of us, we are part and parcel of that organization. He said, I've got a lady that you have to speak to. But uh, nevertheless, Zelda, you know, I'm telling you that's how we got the job to go and perform in Japan through Mandela. In Japan, our show was sold out six months before we arrived. After that, oh, we were unstoppable. We always hear about the wine tasting. Now we're going to milk the cow. Let's all have milk tasting tonight. From that point, Mandela promoted Amampondo as the vital ambassadors of South African music that they were. He nominated them to represent the country at the opening of the 96 Olympics in Atlanta, and, rumor has it, they were his favorite band. Amon Pondo were back with a vengeance. But with all the ups and downs, and especially with the boycott, Dizu had had to come up with other ways to make money. In the late 80s and early 90s, in his words, he fell in love with teaching and worked in Johannesburg and Cape Town, taking students for trumpet lessons, drumming, movement and singing. Someone he'd known for a long time was the University of Cape Town music lecturer Paul Romolara, who asked him to come and take some sessions for the UCT music students. I know this because I was one of them. And one day, it wasn't just the students who turned up. It was the head of department. Professor James May, one time, he came to one of my lectures. And each and every time when I finished doing my lecture, students would stood up and clap hands. And then he said, no, man. This guy... 
He came again, you know, not not once. Around this time, Deasy was trying to start an art and craft center in Langa and had got funding from the U.S. Embassy to go to America to learn how to run a school. While he was there, a message arrived from Prof May. In the hotel where I was staying, I got a fax saying that, Dizzo, I need you in Cape Town because I've got a post, but you've got to come here. Then he sent me a ticket. I flew from New York, coming straight here, just for that post, I was interviewed by all those professors with the spectacles where they put here. They don't look direct, you know, yo! <laughs> so, you know, I answer all those questions and so on. And the next day, back to the flight, going back to New York. And I had that, that's how I got the job here. Yes. And then, you know what James May said? He said that, listen, you are the only person here without a degree. Start now. I did my first degree, I did my second degree, I did my third, I did my fourth degree. He said, you see, now I'm happy. Last time he said to me, you know what is, I want you to be the first black professor in this college in African music. And you are. (laughs) (laughs) And so began another chapter in Dizu Plaiki's extraordinary life. He had already brought traditional African music, with his own personal twist, to people all over the world who might never have seen or heard it. Now he began opening the eyes and ears of young musicians, many of whom, like me, had never strayed outside the Western classical tradition. And the secret to his passion and his extraordinary knowledge is his deep understanding of where this music comes from, because it is where he comes from. I'm from the Eastern Cape, and I know the poverty, but people are rich when it comes to heritage and music. You know, these people, they are better off musicians than me, because these people, they practice 24 hours. They don't do nothing. From the field, they come back, they play their instrument. I call those people extraordinary artists, because things that they would do, you'll never be able to do it. I started collecting more of these different instruments because I also wanted my house to, you know, to have a lot of these instruments so that when people are coming to my house, I can tell them, this instrument comes from some, and so on and so on and so on. Wow, what a lovely poem you have. Yes! And I know that Deezy's house is full of instruments because I was lucky enough to go there and even more lucky to do so together with the legendary bow player and Deezy's aunt, Madusini, who is featured in another podcast in the series. It was extraordinary being in his living room, listening to them playing together. Dizu was responsible for bringing Madusini to Cape Town for the first time. In fact, he is known as a champion of female traditional musicians. And there's a good reason he is so passionate about it. There's lots of questions people that have been asking me. Dizu, why are you always focused in women when it comes to music? I said, men can go and work in the mines. But these women, they've got to stay with the kids. They've got to teach the kids the culture. Because some of these men, they don't come back. Some, they died in the mines. Some of them, they found a new girlfriend and they get married, they don't come back. And the women, she's still waiting for her husband to come back, you know. So what I'm trying to do, 
I'm trying to balance things. By definition, the life of an activist isn't easy. Activism is about fighting for a cause. In this case, creating a place for what Dizu calls ancient classical music in an environment like UCT's music department, a place that understands classical music very differently. But maybe the thing that made him so successful in making that space is that he simply doesn't see an issue. If university teaches music, obviously African music has got to have a place. I always say to the students, you know what? It's good to play a Western instrument, but if you are part and parcel of a person living in South Africa, you must know some other Tosa songs or any African songs because sometimes you'll be invited to go and perform abroad. And people, they will ask, can you sing us a South African song? Where do you start? And the fact that students from all over the world, including from other countries in Africa, are fighting to come to Cape Town to study with this African music champion is something that keeps the department evolving. This university, instead of staying in one place, playing same music over and over again, we are growing faster than any other university because of those students that are coming in this country. Now we've got one guy from Burundi, you know, he just enrolled now. So we're going to be doing the Burundi dramas. So there is so much sharing my skills with people, you know, because most African musicians, they like to die with their knowledge. This one originally, it comes from, um, we usually made out of a bamboo, but now we use this PVC pipe. PVC pipe is more flexible, you know, because you can bend it and you get also other notes and overtones and so on. And that passion to share his music, to teach and to learn from others, is at the heart of Dizu's activism. The sound that made Amampondo famous came from his openness to adding new and more modern influences. He believes that music is made to be shared because that's how it grows. For that reason, both he and Madosini have collaborated successfully with a range of artists and people haven't always been happy about it. When Matosini plays with other people, they will all say that, hey, I don't like when Matosini plays, you know, with some other people. I like it pure. But they are forgetting something. Music, you've got to mix. It doesn't matter what instrument you play, how traditional it is. Each and every instrument has got a key and a pitch, which you tune according to what you want to play. So when Matosini plays with these artists, they listen any instrument on earth you've got to play with another instrument for instance me i played with a taiwanese violinist that's dizu playing with taiwanese violinist chi pin xie on his tour to cape town in 2015. when i go to taiwan everybody knew about dizu you know if i didn't do a collaboration and start fusing this traditional instrument with Western instrument, my album would be still sitting in the shelf. I'm a very neutral person. I respect all different cultures because I always say that a culture is a language that people speak. No other culture can be better than other cultures.
So that is why you are forced as a musician to share your knowledge with other people. Because once you keep it into your heart, you know, you're gonna die with it. I would like to be a Minister of Arts and Culture in this country because we need a person like me who knows who travels the world. We, I'm telling you, these nine provinces is nothing to me. Politicians, they only know us when they need vote. But once the vote is over, they forget that what kills our music in South Africa. My problem with the government now, it seems as if they don't see how important music is. Music, musicians, they bring a foreign currency in the country. They bring more money. And we've got a problem with violence. How do you deal with the violence? You can do sport, but music, a kid will have his own instrument at home practicing. There's no time for violence. Before I broke with Amampondo, I had this young musician that I was training. And some of these group members of Ibuyambo were part and parcel of that show, you know, because I always say that if you want to be a master, always be with the masters. Because in an African way, you cannot be taught only alone music. You just have to be present when any occasion is taking part. Once you are present, then that's it. Samora Muchere, Robeta Gamukabe, listen to the people's liberation in the this is Ibuyambo, Dizu's new band that he's still traveling the world with, still spreading the message that there is talent and creativity that exists on the African continent. A true activist, Dizu passionately believes that his work is not just about music, it's about heritage, it's about helping people realize their potential and about unleashing the power of its talent to make South Africa, Africa, a better, richer place. Telling you, Sister Bo, I'll change South Africa because the problem, we are sitting in a cold and now we are making people poor, you know? It's a world in one. You've got so many different cultures here. And I'm telling you, oh, I can do so many things in this country, you know? Why? Once you first become a teacher, it's easy to do that because you know exactly. The kids, not all of them are going to be doctors. Not all of them are going to be teachers. So we need to give the children a way forward to say that, listen, here's another aspect that you've got to look at. Thank you for listening to this edition of African Music Activists. To find the other podcasts in this series and to subscribe for free, search for African Music Activists wherever you get your podcasts. This is an ILAM production in association with the Menon Foundation. Unsettling Paradigms Multi-University Project and with further support from the Africa Multiple Cluster of Excellence at the University of Bayreuth funded by DFG, the German 